Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I used to think you needed that one big break to make it. Now I believe you need 1,000 mini breaks and that still may not be enough. You still need the big kahuna. And in my life as a musician, I haven't had the big kahuna yet. Mind you, I've only been doing this for 16 months, so mm-hmm. I have to be a little bit modest here. But, you know, like, I was going to get this really big Netflix show. Didn't happen. I was going to get this really big movie to to compose for it. Didn't happen. Uh, I was going to get this really big gig that involves a certain kind of ball being hiked up and thrown across a 50-yard line. That didn't happen. And so you just kind of have to be persistent and kind of you kind of have to be kind of dumb about it you know you have to be kind of an idiot and 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 you know what's funny is you know you're doing well like i guess the barometer to not give up is when people are giving you free advice mm-hmm. because if people are giving you bad advice constantly like every day that means you're doing something of value that they don't understand and so like that's a good barometer to be like I'm on the right track because if people are constantly calling me and telling me what to do even though they haven't made it that means they see me going up. So every day certainly every day people have been giving me bad advice or like they would just tell me what to do or they say you should do this you should do that and I used to be like really angry about it cuz I'm like you guys have no idea what I'm going through which is true. But now I look at it as like oh that means I'm on the right path. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. George, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you by way of your publicist. And uh, I, as I was saying before we hit record here, I, for some reason, been talking to a lot of musicians lately or people who have played instruments for a long time as a former failed slash partially successful tuba player myself. I am always intrigued by the lives of musicians. But before we get into uh, everything related to music, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you've ended up making? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, let's just go right into the Asian parenthood, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's turned into that kind of podcast. <laughs> well, that's why I started with that with you, because I'm like, okay, finally, somebody I can talk to about this exact thing. Yeah, the uh, the unique uh, immigrant kid experience. Um, yeah, I uh, my my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, he uh, owns a office supply company. Um, so he he's been doing that. Oh God, I think he's been doing that for like 40, I think almost 41 years. And, um, and then my mom is, is a homemaker. Uh, but her childhood dream was to be a concert pianist. So I think, I think you can see the thread where this is going. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so th- yeah, that's what my parents do. Okay. So, you know, mom whose childhood dream was to become a concert pianist, dad who's an entrepreneur, but, Go and pursue music as a career is absolutely not a typical narrative about how to make your way in the world for an Asian kid or an Indian kid. No. What what was that around your household? And uh, do you have siblings? And if so, was it different for them? Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is I actually personally did not set out to be a musician at all. I actually, uh, for a long time, thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, And I I was like many like many immigrant kids, I was forced to play the piano and I absolutely hated it. Okay. Like I only practiced one hour a week till I was about 21. I, I hated it. I ran away from piano lessons when I was a kid. I would like hide under the table or the couch. I, um, yeah, I like, like my mom took me to concerts every week, but I, I like fell asleep at all of them. I absolutely hated it. So um, when I told my parents I wanted to become a musician, there was just shock. Uh, I, I dropped out of college to, uh, to study music seriously because I wasn't good enough. And I just, I, like, my, my father didn't talk to me for a year and a half, you know? Whoa. Like, it was, it was like serious Asian drama type of stuff. And so I, um, yeah, my mom, my mom was the more supportive one. But of course, when, when, when your Asian parents don't hear doctor, lawyer, engineer, it's kind of a shock. So it's like, it took a while. Um, luckily for them, both of my siblings, I have a, a younger brother, 17 months younger and a younger sister were seven years apart. They both have like, they're both very successful. And my brother's a venture capitalist at one of the largest conglomerates in Japan. And my sister, uh, is a, I mean, her first job is an art director at Chaya Day. So she, they're, they're both like, they're killing it. And like, yeah. parents are, you know, they're like, okay, we don't have to worry about those two. You got the bullet points of the resume. Yeah. But the, the 30 year old one, you know, or we're worried about that guy. I can uh, relate. Okay. I, there you go. <laughs> my sister's a doctor. Like, I, I had a, a friend in high school whose mom, another Indian guy whose mom used to tell him, if you don't go to your, become a doctor, I won't go to my grave in peace. And my mom was like, cool. yeah, that's true as well. And I'm like, well, I, fortunately, my sister satisfied our quota. Yeah. You know, what's funny is, uh, even though in my house for a while, I think what's, what's really interesting is my, my parents are now fans of my music, which is, it took, I mean, it took three decades, but, um, it, it like, I, that really changed things. But before then, like, I, you know, like, uh, both my brother and I went to Harvard and I thought, like, again, with the quota thing, I thought getting in was an anomaly. My brother got in. Cool. Put all the family stuff on my brother so then I can run away and be a creative. Didn't mm-hmm. work out that way. Um, and, and what I try to explain to a lot of my 
uh, Asian friends, um, you know, I, I, or like mostly my immigrant uh, kid friends, because I think I, I, this kind of runs across with a lot of like recent immigrant families is that mm-hmm. it doesn't sometimes it doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It's all relative to to where they're starting from. So if my because because, you know, Harvard's the dream for most Asian yeah, parents. Right, but, I mean, if, that's what I say, but if like, you have two, then uh-huh. well, then you could get a master's degree. Maybe you could get a Ph.D. at Cambridge, you know, like. It just goes up, you know. And then you're I like, feel like ah. if I went to Harvard and told my parents I was going to study music, like half my family would be like, "What a waste of a Harvard education!" Yeah, well, I mean that was that was uh, what happened when I switched my major to music. I yeah. I was switched my major for the seventh time, and I switched it to music. And my my mom was trying to understand it, you know. I could tell, but my dad was just like, "What are you doing?" Like. I have sacrificed everything. So you had a shot of getting into Harvard. You got in. And then, and what's was funny is actually when we were, we were talking earlier before we were recording about, um, like y- you pursuing, um, the Thornton School of Music at USC. I actually want to go to USC. I didn't want to go to Harvard at all. Like I had zero percent desire to go to Harvard. Um, because I knew what was going to happen, which it did, which was I will be completely overwhelmed by the competitiveness i'm usually i'm a very positive person harvard is an incredibly negative environment and i was i knew i was not going to gel well with that community and Mm -hmm. um and so so i really wanted to go to usc but i i honestly went to harvard because i was the first person in my entire extended family to get into the ivy league um and the first to get into harvard so i i knew from like you know, I think this goes into being a minority in this country, too. I knew that to make sure that whoever comes after me, if I have kids, um, that they have kind of a leg up in society, I did kind of need to go. Like, I felt that immigrant burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's the that's honestly the main reason why I went to Harvard. Um, yeah. But then my brother got in and I was just like, yeah, why is all this pressure still on me? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so you know, I I didn't get to Harvard, but I went to Berkeley, which is kind of the public school version of Harvard, probably. Well, it's what um, it's a great school. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I kind of related to, relate to what you're talking about. Like, I found it to be this really stressful environment. Like, I don't regret it now because I always tell people, it's like, you know what, you learn how to do at Berkeley to manipulate bureaucracies and bullshit to your advantage in ways that most people can't. And yeah, big universities are full of bureaucracy. So you learn how to basically get away with things that most people wouldn't even think to do. Like I had a friend who didn't get into the business school. And instead of trying to reapply, he just took all the classes and walked into the dean's office two weeks before graduation and was like, my parents are coming on Saturday. Are you going to let me walk or not? And it was that kind of shit that Berkeley taught you to do. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally. Well, so speaking of. Harvard. Um, and then I, I do want to come back to to piano. One of the things that really has struck me is in the wake of sort of the college admission scandal and how competitive it's getting is yeah. the sort of value that we have placed on elite education. Uh, there's this book that uh, William Dershowitz wrote called The Miseducation of the American Elite, uh, Excellent Sheep. And we've been a guest here multiple times. And we're talking about how people who come from these schools almost have this sense of entitlement that the world owes them something. Um, because I, I remember I wrote this piece uh, titled Advice to Freshmen, what I would tell myself if I were starting now. And I think the third piece of advice that I put in there is you're not special, you're privileged. Um, just because you get into one of these schools, the world doesn't owe you something. But there's a clip that I wanted to bring back from 
uh, Scott Galloway, that I think would make for a really interesting discussion with you, particularly because you went to Harvard. Take a listen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Despite the fact that the number of people going to college has increased dramatically, uh, the number of seats that have been offered by the top universities has stayed flat. So Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years, but the number of seats that they've increased has, has they haven't increased their freshman class by anything substantial because we as academics, and I include myself in this, have become drunk with the notion of exclusivity. And that is we no longer see ourselves as public servants. We are see ourselves as luxury brands. And every fall, 
the head of admissions and the deans brag about how impossible it is to get in to the college. And you can't be at a party without someone joking that they could never get into their alma mater today. But that's a bad thing because on a risk-adjusted basis, it's likely that your children will be somewhere in your weight class. So, I mean, you went to Harvard. I went to Berkeley. I figured who better to talk to you about that than you? Because I've talked to about to people who are professors from that perspective, but to talk to another student, what do you make of that? It's it's a very complicated for me. It's a very complicated answer, but um, so I actually used to do college counseling pro bono too. So I think I have like a very unique perspective. Yeah. And oh, I actually Lord. I only took on clients that truly needed guidance because that's a whole other thing. I think the college counseling game is like eight ninety nine percent, you know not necessary and, and incredibly expensive and and again it preys on the the luxury brand thing like hopes and dreams of getting to elite school so i think from the economics point of view it's impossible to increase the number of seats it's just not from from a pure business standpoint it's impossible um mm-hmm. because for example at harvard harvard's incoming class is usually about uh 14 to 1800 and even though tuition i think right now is almost 82000 a year uh, that costs Harvard one hundred ninety to two hundred fifty thousand per student a year. So they're not making money on tuition. On top of that, Harvard has the most generous financial aid program in the world. So if you can't afford Harvard, Harvard literally just pays for everything, including your living stipend. So I, so like from that perspective, like I understand why they can't increase the seats. Now, mm. from the perspective of entitlement, that is a hundred percent true. But but it's it's complicated in that. Over 64% of Harvard students are on financial aid. So these are not privileged. Most of the people who go there are not privileged. But what happens is it's so hard to get in because it's so competitive. The moment you get in, you feel like a lot of students feel like I made it. So that's it, right? I'm done. Yeah. But the, the reality is everyone who goes into Harvard, almost everyone's already burnt out. Yeah. And that's why that entitlement kicks in. Because you're surrounded by, not only are you surrounded by the brand of Harvard and the pomp and circumstance, but you're surrounded by the most talented people in the planet in one city. You have the most famous and most successful people coming to teach your classes every week. Like in music, the experiences were insane. Like Yo-Yo Ma was my chamber music coach. I had jazz lessons with Joshua Redman and Wynn Marsalis. I had a beer with Tommy Lee Jones. I like uh, Maya Angelou taught one of my English classes. Like wow. it's you're you're and, and and these are not just like famous people. They're the best at what they do. And so you're you're bombarded by that every day. And yeah. so that entitlement kicks in because of the nurture, um, and and also because you're already burnt out. So when you go in, you need something to lift you up, and that was the brand of Harvard. So from the entitlement perspective, I don't think it's. In the modern age, I don't think it's because a lot of the kids, most of the kids are from privilege. Yeah. I think it's because it was so hard to get in. They were so burnt out and there's like not much like positive energy left. The only thing left to adopt was that elitism. Mm-hmm. So th- that's all that you see that when you graduate, you know, a lot of people truly believe, um, like a lot of my classmates, like they really believe because I went to Harvard, I can get whatever job I wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And so what happens is you start to see like from your 20s to like now I just turned 30. 
that whoever adopted that belief of elitism, like their career didn't really move forward. And it's because they didn't think they had to pay their dues anymore. Uh But the thing, the reason why Harvard is the way it is, is because they still do attract those people who know how to pay their dues. And when, when you look at the Harvard undergraduate admission process, um, there, there's actually like a very specific clause that the admissions officers follow, which is find someone who can take nothing and make it into something great. And that is something that, that is like on the top, one of the top things they look for when they have students. And I think that's why Harvard still produces, um, I don't think they necessarily produce them themselves, but like they attract some of the most successful people in every field because they look for that innate quality, that talent of, you can take nothing and make it great. And, yeah. and so, so, so yeah, of course you're going to have people who buy into the BS and buy into the brand and like wear Harvard per and affiliate all the time. But, but the reason why it's still ranked so highly and the brand is so strong is because they're looking for the, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the Patriots, you know, they're looking for Tom Brady every mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of the argument of like, is it necessary in our modern age to go to an elite school and that kind of thing? No. Like, if, if, if your goal is to have a good living and a well-balanced life, no. But the, there is value in it. Uh, and there's a value in these kind of institutions in that it invites discourse and it invites yeah. deep thinking. And that is something we are sorely lacking in society today. So. I just wish it didn't cost so much, you know, because I don't well, think it should cost that much. So it's just that's so it's like it's a complicated. Oh, so, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, there's that. And, and there's no question that it opens doors that are not open to other people. I only know yeah. this because I went to Berkeley as an undergrad and I went to Pepperdine for business school. And I saw the companies that came to recruit at Berkeley were the Goldman Sachs and McKinsey's. Those people don't come to Pepperdine to recruit. And it's funny when you're saying they look for people who can take something and, and, you know, like take nothing and make it into something. I'm like. I wonder if I applied to Harvard Business School now after 10 years of working on Unmistakable Creative, I would get a, I'd have a much better shot at getting in. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not on the admissions committee. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, now I kind of want to do it as an experiment just as a fluke to see what happens. Um, well, let's go back to the piano. I, you know, when you said that you hated practicing, you hated piano, it, it reminded me of the Andre Agassi book, Open. I don't know if you've ever read that. But he opens the book by saying, let me let you in on a little secret. I hate tennis. So what happened? I mean, you were this kid who resisted this. So how in the world did you go from this thing that you hate to making a living at it? And even uh, on top of that, how in the hell did you get good enough at age 21 to actually start thinking about this as a career? Because you and I both know this. I mean, we both grew up as musicians, like to perform at that level, like you start to lose the dexterity that you have as a child. Like there's certain things you can't do. Cause I've asked Daniel Coyle about this and I, this is what he, he told me. He's like, can you get good enough to impress the shit out of your friends and family? Yeah. He's like, are you going to open for guns and roses at a concert? No. Um, but clearly you, you're kind of an, an outlier in this. So talk to me about those two things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think like a, th- there was a couple moments in my life where, like music really inspired me. And I think that kind of planted the seed. Um, I, I, I was forced to go to a concert for, uh, Lon Long. He's, he's, pro- he's like probably the most famous concert pianist in the world. And, um, and my mom 
got tickets. And when I was 13 at the time, it was basically impossible to get a ticket. It still kind of is, but um, they're playing with the San Diego Symphony. We were three hours late because the traffic was horrible from Orange County. And uh, I, it was, he was playing the second movement of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. And my mom made up some lie to the usher that I was like, I was a huge fan and like, he's my hero and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. Um, but then the usher let me in. He said, oh, we can only have one person going in between movements. So, so they pushed me in and I had no idea where my seat was. I was like, oh my God, I'm in a classical music concert. I am bored out of my mind. Why am I here? And then, um, I heard him play. Well, I'm at a piano right now. So I'll just play. He played. He played that melody and I was like, oh my God, that's like the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. And it was the first time I enjoyed a classical music concert and, and it, I owe everything to Long Long. And so for me, that was the first time I said, this is a worthy art. You know, this is an inspirational art. It finally sunk in mm-hmm. after going to classical music concerts since I was three and hated every second. Um, and then the second time was, at Harvard, I uh, I founded a startup. It was the first startup to be backed by Harvard. And um, we were like going upwards. It was like we were like the rock star from the the incubator. Like I was I was the first one of the first incubated startups at the Harvard Business School as an undergraduate. And so like like we got all this press and stuff and it seemed really cool. And I'm like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to be like Elon Musk one day. And then, and then when it came crashing down, like we lost all of our investor money, our prototype, like completely failed. Um, and I was just, and this was, I was 19 when this happened. Like I lost, I, I lost everything. And, um, and my GPA was horrible because I was running a company. I wasn't going to class. And so I remember being really depressed. Um, and I, I went to a concert and the Boston Philharmonic was playing at Harvard and they were playing Brahms fourth symphony. And I don't know what happened, but I, I, I was watching this performance and I, something clicked in my brain and I said, you know what? That's what I want to do. And because I, I realized like I love craft, you know, I love honing something and being really good at it because I don't know, for some reason, maybe because I grew up with an entrepreneur and I was surrounded by entrepreneurs, like, I I think we always fantasize about craft. Like, we fantasize about the sushi chef. We fantasize about that woodworker. We fantasize about, you know, that guy who makes customized sneakers in LA. You know, shout out to the sh- the shoe surgeon. If you ever want to give me a free pair of shoes, you know, you heard it here first. No, um, but, but, you know, I think we fantasize about craft. And so I... I was like, I want to be a musician. I want to be so good at something that I inspire someone on stage. And literally after that concert, I called my parents and I said, I'm dropping out of Harvard and I'm going to learn piano and conducting like for real. And they were both stunned. As I said, like my dad didn't really talk to me for like a year and a year and a half. My mom was like, are you sure? And I said, I haven't been more sure in my entire life. And I think that kind of conviction was also kind of shocking. And I think that's the moment I started to become a, an adult. Mm-hmm. And so I, I dropped out of Harvard. Oh, they, they, we made an agreement. Like it was more of like a gap year. They said like, you have to go finish your degree. And I said, that I can live with because having a Harvard degree in your back pocket is not a bad safety yeah. plan. 
So I was like, yeah, well, logically, we can agree on that. Um, as much as I don't want to do it, I agree. So I, I dropped out of Harvard. Um, and I, I studied privately at Col- the Colburn School of Music, the conservatory here in LA. Um, and I studied piano and conducting very intensely for one year. So this is the first time in my entire life I dedicated something to one thing. And I play, I practiced piano for 10 hours a day. And I, I had to redo everything because I only play one hour a week. You know, I could play complicated pieces, you know, basically just relying on my, I didn't, I, you know, like minimal talent and, and my brain, but like I wasn't playing at a masterful level. And so I literally started with like scales at this tempo, you know, like just imagine playing that slow and playing scales <laughs> up and down the piano for 10 hours a day. And my teacher didn't let me play any repertoire for four months. So I wasn't allowed to play any Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, nothing. I could only play scales and finger exercises until my scales were like, until I got to that level. And, and like, and, um, and yeah, so for one year and no one think I could do it. Even my, my piano teachers didn't even think I could do it. They thought it was a waste of money and time. They mm-hmm. said it's impossible. And I will never forget. Like I, I gave, I, I gave a recital at the end of my gap year and 450 people came to the show. And, um, I just remember after I played that recital, my dad still didn't say anything. He probably fell asleep a couple of times, but my mom, my mom was like, whoa, she was like, I have never heard you play a concert level. My, like, cause you know, I went from like, you know, it was like a real Hercules moment in a way of like, I'm going from, went from zero to hero in less yeah. than a year. And, and so like, I, I believe in the 10,000 hours thing, mm-hmm. but I think it's like, if you have a really good 6,000, a really, really good 6,000, it can be comparable to 10,000. Um, yeah. and actually, if you look at the stats, a concert pianist usually like that makes it usually has about 22,000 hours of practice. Mm-hmm. Like that's the real statistics. So. Um, so I, I, I still wasn't good enough. So I remember going back to Harvard and the, okay, here's the weird thing about Harvard is even though everyone there is like brilliant and then there's a lot of, there's a huge concentration of geniuses. For some reason, every one of your classmates are the best at what they do in their craft in the world. Like the number one Rubik's cube solver was in my class. This kid who was 17 designed the rocket fuselage for Falcon nine. Okay. That was his high school internship. So like you, you made the, cr- and like, okay, this is all in my dorm too. I'm not, I didn't leave my dorm yet. Okay. And so my classmates in the music department were like the kids who got into Juilliard and Curtis, the best music conservatives in the world and decided to go to Harvard. And so the level was, I was the worst musician at Harvard, like in the music department. And, um, it was, it was incredibly condescending. It was so difficult. Um, and it's, it's crazy. Like when I graduated and like now I do music for a living and I compose, I didn't realize how insane the level was. Like I didn't know this, but if you did composition as an undergrad at Harvard, it's the equivalent to like a PhD program at Juilliard. And so like by the time you're done with the Harvard music program, even though we weren't a conservatory from a, from a conceptual standpoint, you're at the level of a professor. Mm. And, and so like, you know, it was really intense and not fun, but then I came out of it and I was like, wow, like I can be a musician. Like I have the building blocks to pursue a career in music. Um, 
But funny enough, that didn't happen because I went into tech and media for a few years. But but now I'm back. So no, <laughs> kind well, of a windy path. No, as as are the paths of almost every single person I talk to. I've realized people who have interesting careers never have linear paths. But a couple of things that really struck me. I mean, you have this startup blow up in your face and, you know, a lot of people that would be the undoing of them. You know, yeah, like I always say that you can let. A, a negative event inform or define you. You clearly chose to let it inform you. But um, so one, why do you think some people let moments like that define them and others let those moments inform them and hmm. catapult into the next step? Let's start there. Ooh, that's a great question. Um... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Honestly, I think it's preparation and I, I think it's preparation. You know, you like, especially with music right now as an emerging artist, you have to be prepared constantly because you never know when your break's going to happen. And I think that's the same way with failure. Like you're going to fail. Everyone's going to fail. Like nothing's a fairy tale. I mean, it's very rare. You're like Zuck where you get it first. Oh, I guess he failed with Hot or Not, but that was not a really a company and not a very yeah. altruistic pursuit. Uh, but like, you know, like it's very rare. It's like, that's one example, right? It's super uncommon. Um, and so if you're prepared to fail, I think then you can, you can let those kind of life events help inform you of what's next. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a, you know, I had a very atypical upbringing. My father, was a successful entrepreneur who built, you know, his business literally from zero dollars. My parents grew up in incredibly poor in Taiwan. Like my, my dad showed me his home before it got demolished when I was like eight and the floor was dirt, you know? And so like my family came from very humble means. And, um, and my father also served in the Taiwanese special forces. He fought in the Vietnam war. He was a liaison between the green beret and the Taiwanese special forces. So I was brought up as a military kid too. And I had to fold my bed when I was four. I had to wake up, you know, at Oh, 600. I called my dad, sir, for until I was 12. <laughs> so like I was incredibly disciplined, I, obviously not by choice, but I think that, you know, of course, like I've, been doing therapy once a week every day or every I've been doing therapy once a week for two years now to help mm -hmm. me deprogram a lot of the toxicity but yep. I get that <laughs> yeah but the discipline I think is what got me through it because yeah. I didn't think I didn't have time to wallow it was mm -hmm. more of just like what's next because Absolutely. I can't stop and so I think preparation and and the only way you get prepared is practice, you know, like yeah. you're going to have to practice failing and, and practice failing small things and trying to, I mean, I still take things a little personally, not like Michael Jordan, but like, you mm -hmm. know, I still take things a little personally. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't play quarters with the security guards and bankrupt them in one night, but you know, I, I um, I try to think, you know, like it's, it's, it's just like, if you fail little things like, um, like I lose gigs constantly to famous people. Mm -hmm. Like I would book a gig and then someone way more famous than me will get it. And then they'll be like, Hey, George, by the way, we booked someone else with your same name. Uh, but he's way more famous. So we're going to book him. And yeah. it's, I used to get really upset about that. And you know what? Now I just be like, okay, well, if he gets sick or dies, give me a call. Like I'm just being totally, I'm just being logical. I'm just like, if you need a last yeah. minute replacement, I'm available. I can, I can drive. I can drive, you know, I don't need, I don't need a Uber, Uber VIP. I, I'm very mm -hmm. humble, you know, I'm very modest. Uh, I'll do anything. And so I think that's, that's the key preparation. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned, you know, getting beat by somebody else in music because I, I missed all state band by one chair in Texas. And to this day, I still remember the kid's name. Who <laughs> beat me. 
Um, I had, you know, dinner with my ninth grade band director after 30 yeah. years. And, uh, you know, it was funny. We were talking to him about it. And I was just like, yeah, I always that that event, like, just pissed me off so much. I like this kid's name was Scott Jackson. And I was like him and his stupid beret. <laughs> like, um, But, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's a really interesting response. The thing that also strikes me, like, I really appreciate the fact that you talked about um that actual process at the beginning of playing scales at, you know, a tempo, because I very distinctly remember this from when I was in ninth grade band. And, you know, I, I auditioned for the all regional orchestra. And of course, it was a complete debacle because, you know, they only took one person. My band director brought me back from that audition. And he was like, we're going to cut the tempo in half of what this is supposed to be played at. And he was like, and that's how you're going to audition. And I auditioned for the all-region band, and then, you know, it's funny, the guy who uh, ended up being first it was a senior, and I was a freshman, so I was second chair, and I played it at, like, you know, half the tempo that you're supposed to play it at, and I ended wow. up in second chair, and it made me realize what he was doing. I was like, okay, he's making me work on accuracy and slowing this thing down dramatically, and I remember right when... That was all done. He said, all right, you're, you've made it to area, which is the next level in Texas. Like, so they have in Texas, it's, you have all region, which is a bunch of school districts and you have area, which is a bunch of regions. And then if you're in the top three at area, um, depending on the instrument, you get to go to all state. And he was like, look, he's like, you made it to area as a freshman. That's a big deal. And I remember going and I was like, my only outcome that I will be really disappointed by is if I miss it by one chair, because oh, if you're dead last, you never had a chance anyways. And of course I missed it by one chair, but that whole idea of slowing down i mean that is, to get to those fundamentals of mastery i mean talk to me about what goes into that i mean discipline obviously i think people ask me like you know being raised by indian parents i'm like the biggest <laughs> thing i got from that was discipline like yeah. that is one thing that my parents taught me even though i didn't agree with it much like yourself it was enforced it was like of course you get straight a's you don't question yeah the only question i mean i'm sure your parents must have been like this too they don't ask about the grades they only ask why you didn't get an a if you don't that's it. Other than that, no report cards on fridges or, or extra credit. Like if there was extra credit, you're supposed to get that too for some reason. Yeah, you know, yeah. like or if it's an A, you know, an A minus. They're like, why didn't you get an A plus? Uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you, Serenity, that like the the most quintessential version of that was this was at the Harvard graduation ceremony. My brother and I graduated at the same time because my brother is a genius. He did Harvard in three years, and. He was also the youngest fellow in IDEO's history. He dropped out of Harvard to work at IDEO. So he, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a walking prodigy. And so we're, we're getting our diplomas and my brother didn't even know he got cum laude. Okay. It's like, he didn't even know. And then I, I didn't get cum laude on my diploma, although mm -hmm. I did a thesis and I got honors. And then my dad during, during dinner, like our graduation dinner, my dad was like, hey, in front of all of our relatives, because everyone flew in because <laughs> we're the first to graduate from Harvard, right? And he oh. said, in front of the, all the relatives, and uh, this was at Bar Balloon in Boston. It was super glitzy. It was in the private dining room. It was like, because, like, you know, my, my, fam my family went all out because, like, it's a huge celebration. I get it and blah, blah, blah. And then my dad goes, so, George, Ted got cum laude on his diploma. Why didn't you? And he meant it. And <laughs> This is, I'm, a, I'm done, right? I thought I fulfilled the family duties. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell? You know? So, so yeah, I get you.
That's yeah. all I'm trying to say. Like, well, okay. So, so talk to me about the, this idea of, of, you know, sitting and practicing skills for four months. Cause this is something I see with a lot of aspiring creators. They want the, the audience, they want the spotlight. And I'm like, they want attention for their work. And I'm like, you know, instead of seeking attention for your work, go create, create something that's worthy of that attention. And that is the hard work that actually yeah. produces value that nobody wants to do. Uh, right. Because it's not glamorous at all. I mean, who the hell no. wants to sit around playing scales? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, like, it's, I think for me, honestly, like, even, even with my, like, my exes don't understand, like, I've, I've dated prodigies. Like, they're like the guy, the guy went to Juilliard and Curtis, like, full ride, you know, I, and they, they don't like, I was way worse than them. And they, they didn't even understand my drive. And I think you have to, you have to have a really, really strong vision. And what I mean by that is not like the, I mean, I, you know, I listen to Gary Vaynerchuk and I listen to Eric Reese and Malcolm Gladwell. Like these are great thinkers and great creatives and entrepreneurs in their own right. But you have to have an incredibly clear vision of what you want as a creative. So for example, I have in my head, I know exactly what I want, what kind of sound I want to create. Or if I'm playing a piece, I know exactly how I want to sound in my head. Or if I'm like, now I just improvise, like all my sets, everything I do that was completely improvised. Before I start improvising, I already have a concrete concept in my head, even though it's spontaneous. But in my head, I'm writing this song like one millisecond before real time. And so you need to have that incredibly strong desire and vision before you even approach the instrument. And then when you practice, it's all about how do I get that? And, and you have to have that mamba mentality of, and probably this is probably why I like Kobe was such a big part of my life growing up is. You have to have that mamba mentality of there's nothing else but that vision. Mm -hmm. And if you don't hit it for yourself, it, that means it didn't work. And, and so you have to just, that's, that's really what drove me was just like, I need to play at that level. Cause that's, that's what I think is music. And if I don't get there, then I didn't do, I didn't practice correctly, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of stupid in a way. It's obviously not mentally healthy at all whatsoever, but. But that's what it, that's probably what it takes. Is mentally healthy, man. No, that, that was, I was talking about this with another, uh, I was talking about this with my producer, Dan, the automator, you know, and he's, he's like one of the greatest producers in hip hop. And I was like, like he's, I would say he's like fairly pretty happy. I mean, he's had a couple platinum records, so um, he's, he's good. But like, I did, I did ask, I like, we did talk about this. It's a good art. Like none of us are like normal or no, stable, right? We're, we're, like, well, you know, the, the, the uh, thinking, um, you know, the, the, the super pump show, the one about Uber on, uh, Amazon yeah. Prime, like yeah. where Bill Gurley, like he's played by Kyle Chandler and they're talking about Travis Kalnick being, you know, he is like this guy in a balanced place. And he says, nobody who brings an entire sector into being is in a balanced place. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, to, to create at that level, you have to have a, a few screws loose or to believe that you can create, which actually, yeah. um, takes me to two questions one this is just a morbid curiosity question since you were talking huh. about playing and thinking um so i remember the first time i heard it and i was like that's fucking impossible there's no way i can ever learn how to do that so um there's a, a brass quintet called the canadian brass and oh yeah i know who they are they're, yeah, so they're charles fantastic. was the, the tuba player 
Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, people have gone in and out of it, but Dallenbach has always been there. And they have on one of their albums him playing Flight of the Bumblebee on a tuba. Yeah, on, oh, it's so good. Can you so actually good. play that? Uh, I can imp- probably improvise. Yeah, I, I just, see. that's why I asked. Let's see. All right, Flight of the Bumblebee Improvise. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, I, I remember the first time I heard it on a tuba, but yeah, no, it. So I think that there, there are a few sort of final questions that come to this. Like you, you know, when you decide in that moment that, hey, this is what I want to do, and you have this moment of conviction, you're also signing up for a life of profound uncertainty. One oh, yeah. in which there is absolutely nothing guaranteed, no matter how hard you work. So. For you, knowing all that, I mean, you're talking about mental health. How do you navigate this, you know, minefield of uncertainty without losing your fucking mind? Yeah, well, I mean, you do lose your mind. <laughs> I mean, like, it does happen. Like, uh, um, I, okay, so I, I, I think there's like a couple components. Like, one is that expectation thing. Mm-hmm. I, I am expecting to fail every day. I'm expecting nothing to go right. Um, and I think that's after, because I built, I think I've built over 14 ventures now in my life. And so I've, I'm very used to things blowing up in my face. Um, I think it's also that I thought I was going to be married by now. And like, I was, I actually well, in was, my world. Well, yeah. well, I was, I was actually really looking forward to be a stay at home dad. Like, you know, that was where I, my mindset was that like three years ago. So I, you know, like now all bets are off. In my opinion, it's like, I have no, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I used to be that pre-planner. Like, you know, you hear all these like entrepreneurs give advice, like have a one, three, five, 10 year plan. Okay. That's different when you're running a business, but like personally, mm-hmm. who knows what's going to happen today? Well, even when you know? you're running a business, man, the world changes so fast that like five-year plans are outdated. Anybody it's, who makes a five-year plan is wasting their time. Like exactly. You know, the like, question they ask you, like, where do you see yourself in five, five years from now? And yeah. yeah, I remember my, my one of my old roommates apparently told a guy in an interview, he said, five years from now, I see myself on a yacht with people like you working for me. He didn't Whoa, get the job. Oh, That is bold. Audacity, man. You know, I mean, and, well, that's a thing. You, you have to have like the stones to be that crazy and that bold when you pursue something that's, you know, wildly ambitious. Yeah. And you also have to be, you have to be willing to give up everything like what i mean by that is you know i did okay in tech and i i made i made some people very i didn't went out in the deals but i made some people very wealthy but i i did okay but i um like t- the, here's the realities of being an emerging artist like on on instagram it may look like i'm doing super well and blah 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 but actually like it is a struggle every day i sold I spend, I'm, I'm really into collecting vintage guitars and I've sold every single guitar I've ever collected except two. And the only reason why I haven't sold two, like yesterday, I just played guitar for a Foster the People album, which is like crazy. But like, that's like, it's for work. So I haven't sold those two, but 
I spent four years saving up to buy a 1965 Fender Stratocaster. And during COVID, to make ends meet, I sold it. And, and then Steinway, uh, when I got signed as a young Steinway artist, they gave me this crazy offer to buy a nine-foot Consagrand, the one at Boston Symphony Hall, for ridiculous discounts. So I bought, used my life savings to buy that piano, and I sold that one too. And I, I knew I had to sell it just to keep the lights on to keep pursuing music because I wasn't generating the income that I needed to to keep my life going. And yeah. that's that's what you just got to be prepared to do or side hustle. Like, because I like my corporate or I guess my tech background is brand design and brand strategy. So sometimes like I remember I played a I was touring in Europe and I was playing in London and then in between intermission, I was doing a brand design deck, you know, to ship mm-hmm. it to the client. And like, so I reversed the side hustle, right? The day job became the side hustle and the side hustle became the day job. But I think you just have to kind of accept that you're just going to have to give up everything and all your creature comforts and it still may not work out. Like I've had, like, I used to think you needed that one big break to make it. Now I believe you need 1,000 mini breaks and that still may not be enough. You still need the big kahuna. And in my life as a musician, I haven't had the big kahuna yet. Mind you, I've only been doing this for 16 months, so mm-hmm. I have to be a little bit modest here. But, you know, like, I was going to get this really big Netflix show. Didn't happen. I was going to get this really big movie to to compose for it. Didn't happen. Uh, I was going to get this really big gig that involves a certain kind of ball being hiked up and thrown across a 50-yard line. That didn't happen. And so... You just kind of have to be persistent and kind of, you kind of have to be kind of dumb about it. You know, you have to be kind of an idiot. And, and, and you know, what's funny is, you know, you're doing well. Like, I guess the barometer to not give up is when people are giving you free advice. Mm-hmm. Because if people are giving you bad advice constantly, like every day, that means you're doing something of value that they don't understand. And so, like, that's a good barometer to be like, I'm on the right track. Because if people are constantly calling me and telling me what to do, even though they haven't made it, that means they see me going up. And, and it's like that, it's like that weird Asian parenting kicks in because when an Asian parent criticizes you, I don't think they ne- they're necessary. Like, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, it's out of love. I actually don't think that's true. I think they're criticizing you because you're doing something mm-hmm. and that elicits a reaction. And, and Asian culture is terrible at communicating positive reinforcement. So they go the other way, right? They just don't, we just don't know how to do it. Like, it's just not in our DNA. So that is like, like every day, Serena, every day people have been giving me bad advice or like they would just tell me what to do or they say, you should do this, you should do that. And I used to be like really angry about it because I'm like, you guys have no idea what I'm going through, which is true. But now I look at it as like, oh, that means I'm on the right path. Mm-hmm. because that means I'm eliciting a reaction. And as an artist, anytime you constantly elicit a reaction, it means your art is doing something. So, I don't know. That was a long-winded answer, but like, I that yeah, kind of, kind of some stupidity. Oh, yeah, thank you. Oh, that was a beautiful answer. Well, uh, I enjoyed talking to you so much, so I, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Love. Love of something, just, just love, just enamored, 
love, whether it's love of life, love of passion, the love of learning, the love of for people, I think it's love. I think that's what makes you unmistakable. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share your story, your wisdom, your insights, and your music with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to hear uh, all my improvised classical music, um, I'm actually playing a live show in Koreatown in Los Angeles on November 17th at Inner Crew. It's this really cool, been described as the Soho house inside of Koreatown. So if you like good food, great cocktails, and uh, uh, a classical improvising advisor serenading you with piano music for a few hours, uh, check out that show November 17th. Details are on my website, www.georgeco.co. That's G-E-O-R-G-E-K-O.co. Uh, and if you want to follow along my journey of this crazy madness that is music, uh, feel free to give me a follow on Instagram at underscore George Co. Again, that's at underscore G-E-O-R-G-E-K-O. Um, or uh, just check out my music on Spotify and give me a follow there. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.